0: Hey everyone, welcome to season three of the Spoken World Podcast.
1: I am your host, Hua. Can't believe it's three years already, guys. Glad to have you here for another amazing episode. I am your co-host, Daisy. On the Spoken World Podcast, we talk to writers, poets,
0: authors, and spoken word artists from across the globe.
1: Listen to the stories of people and how they express themselves through words. You might find out we aren't so different after all.
0: Join us every episode as we discuss what inspires these artists to write the soulful pieces we have come to love.
1: This is the Spoken World Podcast. Gabrielle
2: Fernandez,
1: Hannah. Maika Jordan Jane Doe Talay Palmer Liam Fee Tegan Skiba What do all these names have in common? These are the names of children who were abused by the very people who were supposed to protect them. Gabriel Fernandez was tortured and murdered by his own mother and her boyfriend. In today's episode, we talk about child abuse with Lydia Taiwo, who was abused by her mother throughout her childhood. She has since then made incredible growth and although the physical scars remain, she has decided to create more awareness about this topic. A little
0: bit about Lydia. She's a survivor of horrific, grievous bodily harm and child abuse. She has over 60 injuries and scars all over her body. There are six on her face and eight on her head which are visible to the naked eye, all at the hands of her parents, most especially her mother. Lydia has been very resilient over the years, carrying the wounds, the pain and heartache. But through it all, she has been able to forgive her parents and move on with her life. She does not consider herself a victim, but a victor. Her faith in God has played a major role in her recovery from abuse. Having suffered abuse doesn't mean you have to be an abuser yourself, is her motto. She has written other books and raises awareness about child abuse and its impact later on in life. Lydia is happily married to David. And they both have six children just like every other episode on this episode we're going to be talking about Lydia's book a broken childhood and I'm going to be reading an excerpt from it chapter five money trouble on one fateful day I was sent to the shop to buy some bread and milk I left the house and walked down the road to Mr. Bailey's shop by the junction. This time, I hoped that mom would not question me about the change. I trusted Mr. Bailey to give me the right change. He was a very nice man. I knew him to be a person of integrity. If you gave him more money than was required, he would make you aware and then return the excess back to you. I said good morning to Mr. Bailey as I entered the shop went over to the passageway where the milk and bread were kept, picked one of each of the items, and went to the counter to pay. I handed Mr. Bailey the money I was given by my mum, and he passed me back the change. I thanked him, knowing that he would give me the right change, but I could not get my head around how much it was. I walked slowly home, deeply scared of what my next ordeal will be. I was learning about money at school, of course, but this was difficult. It was so hard for me to count correctly under pressure. I needed a crash course or a special program on the new currency to placate my mother. When I finally got home, my mother asked me how much change I had. I was speechless and started to move backwards, and when I could go no further, I stopped. Mom got the cable and gave me a thrashing. It seemed to last more than an hour. Cuts appeared all down my legs and arms. I was bleeding. All the while, however, I was trying as best I knew how to count those coins. Finally, I managed to get the sums right. And only then, did Mom decide to leave me alone. I was in so much pain and could not understand why she had done that to me. I still have not forgotten to this day. Little was I to know that the worst was yet to come over the next few years. Hello, Lydia. And, um, yeah, it's kind of been (laughs) off and on, but I am so glad that um, you decided to come on the show. So thank you so much for being on the show.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: All right, well... um, there is so much to talk about, but let's start with who Lydia Taiwo is. Who's Lydia Taiwo?
2: Lydia Taiwo is me. Um, I'm a 55 year old young lady, I'm married with children based in the UK, a professional doctor of pathology and author, a survivor of um, physical abuse and a beacon of hope to those that are still going through abuse. That's me.
0: Wow. So, let me just ask, what made you um, decide to write a broken childhood?
2: It wasn't that I actually decided to write a book at all. Um, I got married in 1990. um, That was in Nigeria, came over to the UK. My husband wasn't aware of anything that had been through. And by chance, um, one morning when we were getting ready to go to church, he saw the scars on my back and um, he asked me what had happened and I didn't say anything and, I mean, he pressed me to talk a bit and um, that was when I broke down and mentioned all that had happened, well, as much as I could at the time, in between tears. And because he didn't really know what to do or say, he said that, well, you know, the the, the least he can tell me to do is to write it down. So I didn't write, I couldn't write for about 12 years. But on write, the only reason why I then, I started to write, I had to forgive my parents to even begin to write because it was so difficult to write. When I carried the pen, I'll be crying, I'll be sobbing, I'll put the pen down, um, but what? not until when I was able to forgive my parents which is the first part of forgiveness was i then able to start writing now even though i had written written all these things down just handwritten i'd kept them away but there was a particular girl that was um, murdered by her her great aunt um, i don't know whether you heard the story of victoria columbia and um, because of her i just felt if this is still going on at this point in time so so many years down the line I think I'd better put my what I've written into a book to actually help people to know that these things must stop. So that was the reason why a broken childhood was written in the first place.
0: Yeah. So let's let's go um, a bit back to to the beginning. Um, okay. You're Nigerian, but you were born in the UK. Tell yes. us about how um, your childhood was moving from foster care and then moving um, in with your actual parents, your biological parents.
2: Okay, so normally, well, I will not say normally, but what used to happen in the, in the 60s and maybe the early 70s and maybe even still now was that because there was so much pressure on parents, especially those coming from abroad, they actually put their children into foster care. So this is something arranged with parents and private uh, English parents who are prepared to take the children, and they are paid to do that. And it's not the really outside of where um, the parents are actually working. So they're going to be there for maybe a year or two years, but in between those times, the parents visit them. So that was how I got into foster care, and I was a baby at the time I was taken there. But now. Even when I was in foster care, I didn't even know that the parents I was with were not actually my parents. I didn't even know the difference between white or black at the time. But it was when I was about four and a half years old that I was taken, my parents came and picked me. They didn't even tell, they didn't even tell my foster parents the actual truth of why they're taking me. They said, oh, that they're just taking me on holiday. But that was it. I was taken away and I had to be living with them in London. Now, having grown up with in a totally different culture, with totally different parents, Um, now coming to live with my own biological parents, which I didn't know they were, was quite difficult because everything changed, the food type changed, the type of um, discipline, things just changed. And when I was not conforming, I'll be beaten. Um, I'll be beaten for waking up late. I'll be beaten for not getting things done. And I would be beaten with cable wire, with shoes, with anything, slaps, hits, you know, knocks on the head. And this was my way of life from the age of four.
0: Yeah, I actually um, remembered um, those parts of the book. Um, I think the one that really got to me was when your your father hit you with his shoe. I mean, basically kicked your head so bad that you bled. Yes. Um... Even though you, I think uh, you were sleeping on the sofa. Yes. So you had to go make your bed on the sofa. You were bleeding. It was bad. And that that was the first time they, um, they taught you to lie, I think. They made you lie um, yes. to say that you fell down the stairs, even That's though right. I think the doctor was very suspicious. Um, yes. I'm sorry, when you were writing this, you already told us that you that that you cried while you were writing this. But I mean, <laughs> you wrote the book, you put in pictures of what you went through. How did it feel to bear yourself to the public?
2: As at the time I was writing the book that you've recently seen, because um, the first Broken Child was written in 2011, the second one was written in 2013. The th- this last one that has been written is actually a book that has four different series in them. So it shows what happened from the very beginning. It shows right, what happened in the courts and it shows what happened thereafter and how people can be helped. Now, when I, was, <laughs> when I was writing this final part of the book, because when I was in the courtroom, I was not believed. I was told I was lying, that I was not telling the truth. And it made me think that if the courtroom feel like that, that means anybody I'm really telling my life story to, they can actually say I'm lying, I'm just making it up, I am just I just want sympathy. So I, f- because of that, I decided that, okay, fine, the only way I can prove my story and that it's true is to show the pictures of my scars and my injuries. And that's what I've been doing. And has the
0: the reaction changed um
2: it the, has the thing
0: is I, I i i have heard stories about parents that have been so cruel to their children i have um been around people who have have had to been rescued by their own parents um mm-hmm. i i have heard of a woman who ended up killing her own child even uh, by by accident it's this is an air quote when um, she was trying to discipline him, quote again. So um, and then he died, which was how like the story went. And I think it was my mother and I that just wondered how exactly that happened. Well, mm-hmm. so when I started, w- when I heard your story, as unbelievable as it might have sounded, that people that that people who were meant to care for you ended up being you know the, the 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 people that you had to you, you needed to find protection from yes um I actually did see some truth in it I did actually believe everything that happened and the fact that you went this far to tell your story to push it out to put out your scars um yeah I do think that putting pictures is uh provides the extra layer of of um evidence um um But another thing that was very intriguing to me was you said that you started living with them at the age of four. So for a long time, this was your reality, right? When did you realize that, okay, uh, no, this is actually not how life is meant to be and there is a problem?
2: I did not know. I did not know that was not how life was meant to be. I thought that that was how life was meant to be. It was not until I actually came back to the United Kingdom um, and started hearing what other people were saying that I thought that, oh, so the way I've been treated, why are my parents treating me differently? Why can't I go out with my parents and or when they come in, my heart is in my hands as if what's going to happen? What have I done wrong? What am I going to be told off about this time? I was getting totally different uh, vibes from most of my friends telling me that, how is it that your parents are? are? they actually your parents? I think even in secondary school, I remember when somebody asked me when I was in boarding school, are they actually your parents? I said, yeah, I believe they are. Um, it then made me to think, are they actually my parents? Because when I consider what other people tell me about their parents, it's nowhere near.
0: Yeah. And at what point did you decide, no, I'm done, I'm leaving. I've, I've had enough. I'm, I'm not doing this with them anymore.
2: I can't say that I actually had that op- opportunity because um, when you're scared, you stay put because you don't think there's any way out. When I was growing up, I didn't know about all the safeguarding um, opp- options that one could have. Um, And because I was in between Nigeria and the United Kingdom, I think when I came back to the United Kingdom in 1990, just before I went back to get married um, in the month of July, uh, my mother held a meeting because she felt she wanted me to start living with her. I was 25 at the time and she wanted me to be living with her by force because I didn't want to live with her and I wanted to have my own place. Um, so she got a whole lot of family friends that knew me and they started, you know, I was in a meeting, so I was on my knees and um, they started telling me how I should start begging my mum, which I had to do. I ended up living with her for a couple of months. I got into the house. I was scared stiff. I mean, at 25, being afraid to be living in the house with your own mother is is something Um, What I then had to do was to, when it got so bad, I had to tell some people who then said, you know what, you need to go and find your own place. I mean, I was 25. Most times in the UK, people of 18, 19, 20, once they're out of uni, they've got their own place. Um, I then had to think of how I was going to run away um, from home because I just couldn't even face my mum to say I wanted to leave the house. So one day when she went to church for choir practice, I was able to plan my escape route and um, i was able to pack all my things and leave and that was how i left the house um i didn't leave any trace of where i was going i just left
0: do you think like when we when you recount everything that happened with you the fact that your parents actually went to pick you up from foster care they didn't have to go pick you up for foster care do you ever feel like there was a reason why they did it? There was a reason why they treated you the way they did?
2: I I don't know. <laughs> I can't, I mean, I never really got the answer, even when it was taken to court. I wasn't really given an answer as to why they did what they did. Um, people were saying maybe it's the pressures of the country, pressures of work. Um, but I, I'm not sure about that because I've got children of my own and I, I dare not treat them the way I was treated at all.
0: Wow. That's some um, forgiveness spirit right there. So um, after the fire incident with your junior siblings, you and your little sister were sent back to Nigeria and you described yes. it as being the worst three years before your family moved back to the country. What were... I'd like to know what you encountered as pretty much being a foreigner in your own country.
2: <laughs> yes, it was like being a foreigner in my own country because we were just going from one family to another. Um, we were put into boarding school. My sister was seven. Um, no, she was eight. I was 12. We were both put in different boarding schools. Um, we will have somebody pick us up one one holiday, another person pick us up another holiday. And more or less, in those houses where we were went to, a few of them, we were actually like housemates doing all the housework, doing all the cleaning. You know, the children are playing around. We're going to the market with the, the mother or the house help. Um, it was more or less, I, I just saw it as more wickedness. Um, we mentioned the things to our parents by letter, but obviously they didn't believe our story. And I grew up learning that older people always listen to older people. They never listen to the young, um, which has made me to be very, in a way, maybe protective of my ones, because if they if somebody tells me, oh, your child did this, I'll make sure I confirm from my child and not from the adult, um, because from my experience, um, it was the opposite. So that's why I said it was the worst three years. Um, it, it, for me, I felt I was dumped in a country, even though it was meant to be my country. But I felt dumped and left alone because after we were taken to Nigeria, we were actually taken away to hide us out from the um, social services here because of my sister's accident that occurred in the UK at the time. Mm-hmm. So it was for me, it was like a punishment.
0: Yeah, and going through what your mother did from before your your sister. Now, now that we're talking about your siblings, I mean, from the time she used to flog you with cable wires if you came home late from school I think there was a time you had an accident um and yes. uh, I, I was actually surprised that your your father got angry with your mother because of that um he he, he thought she was abusing you and I was like well he's just as much of as a, a, an abuser but nevertheless so that happened I think there was a time she punched your finger on a kettle and all mm-hmm. of that happening then yeah. your little brother came along and the relationship was very different. How did that make you feel?
2: Uh, I can't really say I saw it in the younger years. It was when I was much older, my teenager years, and then we were all in Nigeria at the time. This is post 1979, Um, That was when I actually so <laughs> took my mum on a particular occasion that she treats my brother different to he treats the rest of us. Um, that made her very angry and upset because if she hadn't seen it or hadn't noticed that we noticed it, we did. Um, he was, I could never see that he was actually ever beaten by my mom at all. And she always wanted a boy. She got a boy, so she really got what she wanted. So he was more or less like a jewel in her hands.
0: Yeah. That is a thing with... uh, I don't know if it is a a Nigerian thing, because I haven't really related with people outside the country, even though I watch movies um, trying to get a boy for the house. I do know of an aunt that kept trying to get um, a boy. She never did. She got all girls. Um, There is that thing of them treating the boys differently, especially if they're... I think um, it gives them a higher status. I think if they have a boy... And then all of that tradition just plays out, even in places where it's not supposed to matter, like in the UK, the culture there is definitely different. But um, mm. otherwise, uh, speaking about your brother being treated different, in a third part of your book, you talked about how your little brother tried to sabotage your story with the, uh, with the radio interview and the reviews on the internet. I, I actually want to know about your relationship with your brother and how you coped with that.
2: The relationship with my brother, I think the situation that I found myself was that because my brother, and I hold nothing against my brother and younger sister, it's because they don't know. They don't know what really happened. They were never told. It's like a secret that has been kept from them. So they only go by what they've been told or what they know about. So for him doing all that he did, um, I don't blame him, but I just hoped that my parents would actually tell the rest of my siblings the truth, because not telling them the truth is what led everything to go to court. Because when all of this happened, I then had to get, I then had to seek um, legal advice as to what I can do, because as a result of what the book has done in this country. Um, Teachers call me to come and talk to them about safeguarding issues, especially with children in schools. And having been invited to come and talk to a school, and then my brother happens to write things on the Internet, people will then say maybe he's telling the truth. So I had to get legal advice as to what I could do. And um, that was when they said, well, I need to get a police reference. And I reported it to the police, which I never had done and which I wasn't planning to do. Um, they said, well, they can't help me to do that except if I get a police reference because they then need to be, they need to go by what that police reference uh, says, etc. So I then had to go to the police to get a police reference. And that was where the whole story came out into the public. So if not because of what my brother had done, it would never have come out into the public in the first place. But I, I, I don't hold anything against him because he did not know. He was not told the truth.
0: And um, how was your relationship with your brother when you were little? And how is your relationship with your brother now?
2: When I was little, well, I was the one looking after him. I had to take him to the childminders before I go to school. I had to pick him up from the childminders when I was on my way back from school, take him home, give him food with my um, younger sister. So I was more or less looking after them. So it wasn't, in terms of relationship, I can't really explain that I was taking responsibility for them and I'm talking about from the age of 10 upwards um, while in the United Kingdom because we left United Kingdom when I was 12 so he was about three and a half four at that time now but now um, because it seems that um, uh, when, when the family or when the parents are pulling children apart And get them not to get involved with their siblings, it becomes a bit difficult, which is the situation in which we're in now. So we've not spoken over many years. And since the court case, we've not spoken at all because I'm considered to be a bad person for taking my mother, and my father to court, which I didn't do. Actually, it was actually the government of the United Kingdom that took them to court. I didn't pay a penny. I didn't have to get a lawyer. They saw the case as physical abuse and took it on as a historic abuse case. It was actually the state against my parents, not myself.
0: And and even after that, even after taking your parents to court, um, there was still a chapter on forgiveness, um, the third part. You talked about forgiving your parents for yourself. Can you explain that?
2: Well, I'd forgiven my parents when I first of all wrote the first book. Now, with the build-up to all what was going on, it became even, you know, the forgiveness I thought I'd forgiven, I suddenly realised that <laughs> this is much harder than I could have ever imagined. Because when what could have been sorted out in your living room? What could have been sorted out by just saying, yes, it happened, I didn't know any better, or yes, not even to say sorry to me, but to let my siblings know the truth of what really happened, it would have helped the, it, you know, would have helped a whole lot of things. None of the things that had hap- that would have happened, would have happened. But unfortunately, because they didn't, it brought out so much, so much. Uh, it's you know, like a can of worms, really. And um, because of that, it then made it even harder. I, I then hated them. The more, I, I, because I felt I had been rejected. I felt I had been cut off. My par- I heard that my parents had told so many people and so everybody was not against me. Um, my siblings did not talk to me once before the case, not to talk of even now. I mean, the case went to court 2018. I've not had any relationship with anybody, although my mother was given a two-year prison sentence, so she wasn't even allowed to come near where I lived anyway. And likewise, my father, who was given a non-custodial sentence, so um, they were given restrictions, but my siblings did not come in contact with me at all because they still felt that I was wrong. I that it never happened. They still don't. I don't. I believe they still don't believe that it actually happened. And so having to forgive all of that, um, when I was writing the last part of the book, I was actually literally crying as I was writing because it was so painful. And each every step of the way, I was just saying, God, help me to forgive my parents I need to forgive because it can affect one's mental health it can just cause one to stop at a particular bus stop and not move forward in one's life and I I just knew I had to forgive them because the bitterness the anger and everything else was not helping me in terms of health wise and I needed to I needed some um, respite some space so that was why I had to go to God and I said God help me to forgive And it's difficult very difficult indeed and you know the fact that I many a times go through the pain even as at today I still have the pain the head injuries they hurt so much so that sometimes the only thing I can do is to sleep because there's no medication that can work because the the nerves have been damaged Um, by the hit on the head with a mop metal stick It cut the nerves the blood poured out And I was not taken to the hospital. My mother was just putting mentholated spirit, where she put me under the hot water in the bath, then started treating it with um, mentholated spirit until it got better. Now, if I'm going through that pain after 40-something years of having those injuries, um, I'm still prepared to forgive my parents. Because one day we're all going to stand before God. And I don't want to say because of unforgiveness, I cannot be in the place where I want to be. So that's the reason why I, I decided that I've got to forgive, even though, yes, it was hard. And I believe forgiveness is daily because when you rem- when I remember the, the injuries, I see them every day. My teeth that I have to brush every day, they were two front teeth broken. They're not my teeth. They were fitted for me. I see them every day, but I've got to say, Lord, I forgive them.
0: Wow. And... Well, that's actually a lot to take in. I'm not even you, but I, I'm already very angry and I can already feel your pain sitting from right here. Um, so you now work with agencies that help children um, that are victims of domestic abuse. Can you tell us more about that? When did you decide to get into it?
2: Uh, I just felt that The least I could do when I was hearing all the stories was to help out. So I've done some work with an agent called Africa, and I believe they've been in Nigeria a couple of times, Um, working with them, talking to um, nurses, talking to doctors, talking to teachers, um, but also empowering young people to know what their rights are. Um, It's not to say that if they need to understand what discipline is, they also need to understand what abuse is, because there's a difference between the two. Um, Saying that, oh, you're not going to be able to go and watch TV today is not abuse, it's just, you know, part of discipline when you need to study. But when they actually lift up a weapon and say that, you know, actually hit you with it, because maybe you didn't do what you were meant to do, then one needs to be very cautious and careful of that. Um, In the United Kingdom, you cannot actually use a weapon on a pediment to actually use it on any child or anybody. So um, young people are not aware of that. They sometimes are beaten and they run away from home or they walk the streets. But while they're in school, I have the opportunity to talk to some of these young people or in the local churches so that they actually know what their rights are. And what they can do. The main reason why I try to empower them is because many people when people are going through abuse, the first thing that goes out of the window is their education. They feel that what's the point? But if they understand that getting an education is a way of escape and they are and that awareness is made known to them they will be able to knuckle down, get their education. If that's the only thing that's gonna push them to get their education, they'll get their education and they know that that's their way of escape because then they will not need to depend on anybody, which is what I did.
0: Yeah. So what would your advice be to people who are out there experiencing some kind of domestic abuse right now? Not just to them though, I'd also want to hear what you think about those people who suspect or know that their friends, family, relatives, or neighbors um, are going through domestic violence?
2: Um, What I will say to people who are going through is young children, maybe still going to primary school, if they can't get help for themselves, um, they should try and stay clear of the person who's abusing them. Whatever they can do, to do what is right so that that person cannot abuse them, because most times it's because they did something wrong or did not do what they were meant to do. If they can tell uh, a person an authority, and I'm talking about worldwide, um, in some places the authorities will not listen. I know that in Nigeria now they have also safeguarding um, uh, officers as well, so that's very good. Um, and, and that's for them to get, you know, get the authorities involved and find a way of escape. Um, teenagers, young people, they can actually find a way of escape. There are different charities that are around now that people can go to. So um, that's another option for women um, who are going through domestic violence. They also, it's all about getting help because that's the only way out. I wouldn't say run away because that's not going to help because you may run to a family member and they're going to take you straight back to where you came from um and it gets worse after that um sometimes it costs people even their own lives so i don't recommend running away to a family member or to somebody you know because it it just won't it just won't help
0: right thank you so much uh lydia for engaging in this um enlightening and deep discussion with me, with us. It was great having you on. I'm so glad that we're able to have this interview after, despite all of this. (laughs) (laughs) Thank 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 you. Thank you so much for listening till the end. It's been quite an eventful past couple of weeks and Even more so with the new episode and the new stories we seem to be getting. I'm a huge fan of Teen Wolf and there was a mantra they kept saying, three things cannot be long hidden, the sun, the moon, the truth. Cheesy, I know, but it does make a lot of sense it does help balance everything that's happening and all the truth that's coming out anyway if you know anybody who would like to share their story on the show tell them to send an email across to thespokenworldpodcast at gmail.com follow us on instagram and twitter at the spoken world and please leave a review rate us like it would mean so much if we got to hear your thoughts And I'm pretty sure a lot of you enjoyed the show, don't even deny it. Till next time, my name is Hua from Nigeria.